Amen. Thank you. I love, I love finishing on, uh, on a phrase like that, if God is for us, who can be against us? I love that. Uh, youngins, you're already headed that way, so I'll just make it official. You are free to head on down to your, your teachers are back there to meet you, and uh, you can go get to, man, I just really am getting to like, I can feel something stirring in me with, uh, with kids ministry because I want to follow them out and just see what they're up to today. I'm thinking about, uh, you know, last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, they had a snow machine downstairs, and um, I'm thinking now that after a snow machine, we should have a snow cone machine downstairs, um, and then I'm not going to come back up here ever again, but, um, or maybe with a, a popcorn machine too, and a hot dog roller. We get those things, I'm, yeah, I'm, yep, somebody, what's that? You can come downstairs with me. Actually, that's a good idea. Grab that Connect card in front of you, right? <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm, that's, not, that's not right. That, um, but it was funny. That's <laughs> oh, my gosh. We, we better, yeah. I always get to this point, and, uh, and I realize that we should just pray, and then that will help me stay on task. So let's do that. Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, I, I just thank you that, that we together our, our meeting, and I pray that, that also just uh, we, we would become aware of the fact that you called each of us here together this morning. And so, Father, if this is our first time or, or first that thousandth time that we have been in the vineyard, I pray that we would know it's purposeful today. And so, Father, would you, would you get me out of the way? And Father, as, as I'm decreased, would you increase? Would you teach us, Lord? Would you show us what you have in Scripture? And would you connect us to your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the midst of our summer of heroes here at the Vineyard. We're taking a slow walk through Hebrews 11. And it has been a slow walk all of June, all of July. We will finish up in a couple weeks um, with the, the last weekend of, of August, uh, we are, are examining how faith is activated in those that, that believe in the living God. And something that I've mentioned a time or two, and I'm going to keep mentioning even after we get through this sermon series, uh, that word faith has been a difficult word for me to grasp, especially as, as a new Christian. It was, it was very difficult to grasp and I also felt like the people that would talk to me about faith didn't really understand what they were saying because it, it may, it, I almost wondered if they actually had what they were talking about. Um, but faith as a practical concept has been elusive for me. Faith is something that, that, that I've been pointed towards. It's something that I've been encouraged to operate with. And it sometimes it was falsely taught and sometimes I probably falsely taught that it's something that we can create as a product of our individual work or our individual effort. And faith is none of those things. Many times faith gets treated as a behavior that we can perfect or a product of our work. And all of that, for me at least, has led to frustration and shame. And also, it just has damaged my ability to trust and have a relationship with God, but also with other people. Now, what we've seen with each step of our journey through Hebrews 11 this summer 
is that faith, one, it requires a relationship. It requires that thing that we put faith in or that thing that we have faith in, but it also suggests that faith requires community. Whether we're talking about faith in each other or faith in God, faith has been demonstrated in all of this as we've unfolded this story. It's been demonstrated as a product of participation in relationship. And so faith, if we're looking for an accessible uh, definition or an accessible way to understand faith, we can see faith is a product of participation. It's what happens when we participate with, with somebody or, or something else. This is, is not a product of our work, but a product of our participation. It's a product of knowing and being known and it's also the only requirement for faith, or for, for salvation. It's the only requirement for being in right relationship with God, this idea of faith. And so taking another step back, the only requirement for salvation, the only requirement for right relationship with God is the product of participation with him. Now we also know and we've seen in all of these examples thus far that faith is both intellectual and intuitional. It requires that, that both knowing and being known that, that we spoke about before, but, but knowing something and allowing that knowledge to create a, a, an informed expectation. Our knowledge of one another is correlated to our ability to have faith in one another, and that applies to God as well. Our knowledge of God correlates to our faith in God because it, it's our understanding of God's character that that truly will dictate our participation with him something that i've struggled with that's made that faith difficult is a false narrative of god a false narrative of god uh, that'll lead us to a false reality of relationship and faith then is placed in something less than whole if our entry argument is a false narrative, then we've actually created something that doesn't exist, and then our faith is placed in something that doesn't exist. Consider a false narrative of God that suggests an angry, wrathful, hard-to-please father that gets frustrated when he's bothered by his children. Is that hitting home with, with, with anyone in terms of a false narrative with, with God? This is my starting place, this is my, my, the starting place of a false narrative of God that I held on to for a long time. Angry, wrathful, hard to please, and frustrated when they're bothered by, by the, his children. Maybe a narrative, also another false narrative, that, that makes God like a genie in a bottle that grants wishes, or, or like a pinata that if you smack it enough, blessings going to fall from the sky. And if you heard me say genie in a bottle and now that song is stuck in your head, you're welcome. Um, now it really is stuck in your head, right? Yeah. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, bless you. Um, and now it's stuck in my head. So I don't know why I do things like that. Um, that's <laughs> no, no, we're yeah, we're let's get back on track. That's get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Oh my goodness. These narratives of these false narratives of God, these false narratives of the character of God, if we think about what that, that participation leads to, it doesn't lead to faith, right? What it leads to is fear and aversion. Or 
it leads to a tendency to ask God's intervention as a response to to discomfort, to tragedy, to adversity, but then having less interest in God um, and God's participation with us when it comes to desires and ambitions and when everything is going fine. This is about God giving himself in line with my will rather than God giving himself in line with his will. And all of that leads to a creation of religion that perverts the reality of God, the, the, the reality of the God that created us, and not just created us, but desires to be in relationship with us. This is not an angry, wrathful father that just can't be bothered. This is someone who loves and created because he loves. And then, because of his love for what he created, wanted to be in community with that creation. Now, the pathway to participation with God in the function and order that produces faith always begins with an authentic experience with him. To have what God offers comes by way of experiencing his love, not by being taught about his love, not by being told about his love, but by an authentic experience with the living God. Now, this experience, honestly, is why we meet together. And the very event that we invite people to realize when we tell them about Jesus is this experience. And so what we are not inviting people to, to uh, consider is, where are you going to go when you die? We're not inviting them to consider how, how terrible of a life that they've lived. What we're inviting them into is an experience with Jesus. An experience of God is an example of a fulfilled promise. And so right away, when we experience God, and we recognize that that is a fulfilled promise on the part of God, our relationship is beginning in a place where that participation can build faith. Now today, we're going to see a diverse presentation of how God can be experienced as we return to Hebrews chapter 11, and we, we see the story of, of five different heroes of the faith. Um, and, and I will tell you, if you, are, um, if you grew up in the, the paradigm of veggie tales. I've been waiting to talk about Rackshack and Benny for a while, so today's a good day. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 33. By faith... Man, this is so cool. I love, I love reading this passage. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Now, I've said this a couple of times as we've gone through this, and in other, I mean, the, the Old Testament, well, any, really all of Scripture reads like the most amazing action movie in the history of the world. And, and this is, is a piece of that. Um, 
this is better than anything that, that Hollywood could ever come up with, but also you, you're, we're left in this place of asking the question of, of how or why these, these individuals would, would be able to endure these things, and, and obviously the, the answer is because they know, they, know that they know the purpose of what they're doing, and all of it started with an experience with God. Our first hero today, mentioned in verse 34, is Samuel. Now, Samuel, and this is an important thing to, to, to keep in mind as we go through this, as we, as we interact with Scripture, Samuel was a real man that really existed, a man that, that operated with an extraordinary level of faith that was rooted in an authentic experience with the living God. All of the things that Samuel did, it wasn't that, that he was a spectacular uh, specimen of, of humanity. It came from the fact that he experienced God and that experience revealed God's character to him, and he operated with the knowledge of God's character with everything that he did. So this real man that really lived also had a real experience with God that then informed everything that he did in his life from that point forward. Samuel was dedicated to the service of God by his mother Hannah, uh, who was unable to have a child without God's intervention. Samuel was dedicated to God, and he lived in the temple with his, with his mentor, a priest named Eli. Now, in 1 Samuel 3, we see that this encounter with God start to play out. Samuel hears a voice in the, in the night. Yeah, there, he's, he's living in the temple with Eli. He hears a voice in the night three times, and he thinks that it's Eli calling him. And Eli is old at this, uh, at, at this point, and so there's, you know, maybe the old guy needs a hand with something. And so three times, Samuel gets up and, and goes to Eli um, Eli trying to sleep, he gets a little bit, he's like, hey, it wasn't me, go away. And then it happens again, you can kind of like, I mean, I just think of like, maybe not just an action, but I think sometimes there's a comedy movie in, in scripture as well, and I could just see Eli being like, kid, go to bed. But the third time, you know, and, and this is either wisdom, or just like, I don't know, if like sometimes you throw misdirection at your kid just to get him to, you know, maybe... But I think this was wisdom. This is rooted in wisdom. Eli says, hey, if you hear that voice again, answer it and see what happens. And so Samuel hears the voice again, and he answers the voice, and this is the encounter. 1 Samuel 3, the Lord came and called us before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel replied, speak, your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. I'm going to carry out all of my threats against Eli and his family from beginning to end. I have warned him that judgment is coming upon his family forever because his sons are blaspheming God and he hasn't disciplined them. So I have vowed that the sins of Eli and his sons will never be forgiven by sacrifices or offerings. Now what's happening to Samuel in this story is something that we know is prophecy. God's becoming, for Samuel, more than a figurehead. God's more than an idea. God's more than, than a figment of his imagination. In this moment for Samuel, God became real, tangible, and a being that he could interact with and have relationship with. And in this interaction, in this experience of God, relationship and faith is born. Now, the message that God gave Samuel is, is per perhaps the scariest message that, that we could receive either for ourselves or for somebody else. 
and, and that scary message is that God is going to allow Eli and his family to have what they want. God's giving Eli and his family exactly what they want. Now, Eli had, in a lot of ways, served faithfully for a long time, except for one thing. His sons were corrupted agents of debauchery. They are men that serve their own pleasure. They had orgies in the holy place of the temple. They treated the altar like their own personal barbecue by eating the meat uh, of the sacrifices as they, as they were being offered. They, they lived as entitled, spoiled, rich kids. They lived as the center of their own order in a life that was predicated on the pursuit of comfort and gratification. And Eli allowed this to happen. They wanted to be the center of their own order. They wanted to be that thing that everything else would revolve around. They wanted to be in the place of God. And so God said, okay. Wish granted. There is a twofold result from the judgment that came onto Eli and his family. One is that order in the community was reestablished in the temple. And the second is that Samuel sees, after this encounter with God, after this experience with a real being, what, what Samuel sees is that, is that God will do what he says that he will do. In other words, in participating with God, he sees that he can place his faith in God. Now, Samuel, what we see in the rest of, of uh, the, the narrative of Scripture in 1 Samuel, that uh, Samuel becomes a prophet, he's a priest, he's also the final judge for the nation of Israel before we move into the era of the kings. Now, remember that in the time of Judges, the nation of Israel is, is in a cycle, and it's a cycle downward that begins with sin, it begins with idolatry, it begins with placing something other than God at the center of order. That's where the cycle starts. Now, after sin, um, it, there, there's oppression, there's judgment that comes because of the sin, and, and that's typically done, as we see in this cycle, of oppression that comes in from an outside force, an outside uh, a king or, or, or kingdom that comes in and, and will oppress the nation of Israel. And that oppression then leads to repentance, because the nation will look at how they got into this place and say, we don't like it, we want to go back. That leads to God's intervention a deliverance from the oppression, and then peace. And with the lack of pressure, the lack of pressure that peace can bring, we see sin return and a re-entry into the cycle. And then over and over we go. So Samuel's life then, as, as prophet and priest and judge, becomes about calling the people back from chaos that results when, um, when things other than God are the center of order. The, the intelligent design of creation is realized when all things are operating in their given place with their given function, and that means that God is at the center of order. So when we have something other than God at the center of order, what we see is the opposite of order. We see chaos, and, and Samuel is living in this tension of, of demonstrating the chaos and where it comes from and calling the, the nation of Israel back from the brink of that chaos. Now, Samuel knows that from his participation with God, that he can trust God to be true to his character. 
He knows that God's going to do what he says he's going to do, but he's also going to act with the character that God has. God will be faithful to himself. And so when we know who God is, we can then have intuition about what God will do. Samuel knows that God is just, but also he knows that God is a God of reconciliatory love. Another way to say that is that God offers a way back. Before finally giving people what they're asking for, like Eli's sons, he offers a way back, and this is true for us as well. He offers us a way back that is exemplified by Jesus dying on the cross so that we might live. This is the ultimate proof of that narrative that Jesus, or that God will always give us a way back. Samuel knows of God's reconciliatory love because Samuel knows God. Later in his life, the nation of Israel was living with the consequences of chaos. And, and this, I think, is uh, really uh, where the, the writer of Hebrews sees Samuel as a hero of faith with all of the stuff, all of the life that he has lived and the, and the participation with God. Uh, the nation of Israel, they are living with the consequences of chaos. They're worshiping things that are other than God. They are uh, in that part of the cycle that, that found them oppressed by enemies, and they are far separated from the love of God. The Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. The enemy had captured the very symbol of God's presence. This is, a, if not the lowest, it is a low point in the history of the nation of Israel. The enemy had the thing that reflected the presence of God. Samuel enters the situation, though, with faith. Because intellectually, he knew that God's, he knew of God's redemptive character. And the intuitional part is that he expected God to act in line with that reconciliatory character. 1 Samuel 7 captures the story here, starting in verse 3. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods and your images of, of Ashtoreth. Turning your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone, then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites got rid of their images of Baal and Ashtoreth and worshiped only the Lord. Then Samuel told them, Gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah in a great ceremony, drew water from a well, and poured it out before the Lord. They also went without food all day and confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. It was at Mizpah that Samuel became Israel's judge. Then the Philistine rulers heard that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, and they mobilized their army and advanced. Quick aside here before we move on in that, I just want to point out one thing that, that uh, is important to catch, because if we think about the character of God and we think about the things that, that, that are always true of God, did you see what the nation of Israel um, was required to do in, in, um, because of their sin? They confessed and they repented. When the Philistine rulers had heard that Israel gathered at Mizpah, they mobilized their army and advanced. The Israelites were badly frightened when they learned that the Philistines were approaching. Don't stop pleading with the Lord our God to save us from the Philistines, they begged Samuel. I've prayed prayers like that before too, so I'm not going to judge. 
So Samuel took a young lamb and offered it to the Lord as a whole burnt offering. He pleaded with the Lord to help Israel, and the Lord answered him. Just as Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines arrived to attack Israel. But the Lord spoke with a mighty voice of thunder from heaven that day, and the Philistines were thrown into such confusion that the Israelites defeated them. The men of Israel chased them from Mizpah to the place uh, below Bethkar, slaughtering them all along the way. Samuel knows that God is a God who saves. Samuel knows that God is a God of reconciliatory love. He knows that God will provide a path to be in right relationship with him. And when we choose to travel that path, rather than trying to create our own path, we experience that reality of righteousness, that reality of being in right relationship with God. A product of participation that began with encounter is the story of Samuel. Four more heroes of faith that emerge uh, that teach the same reality. All four of them come from the prophetic and apocalyptic book of Daniel. That part of Hebrews 11 talks about lions and fire, which is pretty awesome. Centuries after Samuel, after the nation of Israel turned to earthly kings to rule over them, these kings turned from the path of, of relationship with God. We see this cycle continue even after the age of, of Judges. And the further we get uh, from this time of Samuel, the further the nation of Israel is getting, to, uh, getting from God. The Israelites, they find themselves defeated, captured, exiled from the land that was promised, the land uh, of their ancestors. They are exiled from that land, and they are sent to the land of those that conquered them. Daniel and three of his friends were chosen to serve in the household of the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king. And here, in this place, exiled from the land of their fathers, exiled from the promised land, far away from the place, also far away from God, they will encounter God in a pretty powerful way. In an attempt to, assim- uh, to assimilate This, this attempt to assimilate kind of works in both directions, to, to bring into their culture what they also have to do is assimilate out of them their own national culture. The Babylonians, they select some of the leading young men of Israel to train them in Babylonian ways. Now, these young men, uh, they're offered king, uh, the, the king's table, the, the food from the king's table, um, and, and on that table, you know, they're going to eat well the problem with that, though, is that there is going to be food on that table that, that for an Israelite was off-limits. They're also going to be taught not just to eat this food, but also practices that would separate them from the lineage of God's chosen people. And so in this training, there is, there is a, a very concerted effort to assimilate out of them the things that they know bring righteousness with God and bring them into a place where, where they look more like the Babylonians. And, and through this, there would be peace. Now, not wanting to have the possibility of relationship with God lost due to this oppression, Daniel convinces his captors to allow him and his friends to eat only vegetables and water so that he might remain in compliance with the law of Moses. 
And in that decision, we see an encounter with the living God. Daniel and his friends, they find favor uh, on, on the part of the, the Babylonian captors. This is a miraculous favor. He and his friends that, that join him in this find themselves to be healthier than those that, that enjoyed the, the food off of the, the king's table. They are healthier than those that stepped into Babylonian assimilation. Not only are they healthier than those that stepped into assimilation, they also are given a gift that Scripture tells us is, is one of aptitude and wisdom. They participated with God, and God remained true to his character, which brings us to the events that the writer of Hebrews is referring to, to when, when we're talking about shutting the mouth of lions and quenching the flames of fire. And all of this began with an encounter with God. Daniel, years after this entry into assimilation with the Babylonians, is now serving Darius the Mede, uh, a, king, uh, uh, a, a Mede king. Uh, this is... This is the reality for, for David. David being a, a, a man of aptitude and wisdom that came from that miraculous encounter, he is not well-liked with the, 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 the other folks that are serving Darius. They use his faith to trap him. They use his faith in his relationship with God. They weaponize it, and they trap him in a scenario that, that because of what he did, the consequences were he, he would be executed. After they trap him in this action, they convince Darius to create a law that they knew Daniel would violate. A law prohibiting prayers to any god other than Darius. And so we see this play out in Daniel chapter 6. Then they told the king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled, and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He knows the consequences of what's about to happen because he just got tricked into signing the law that, that made this punishable by death. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his, his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sights. Now, I want to show an image here. This, is, uh, this image is Daniel in the lion's den by Britton Revere uh, that was painted in 1892. 
When I think about uh, an image that might encapsulate everything that we see in Hebrews 11, this is the image that comes to mind. Daniel had an, an encounter with God. Daniel had an experience with God. That experience began a relationship that revealed his character. And every step of the way, he saw that God was faithful to that character. Every step of the way. Daniel grew in his intellect of God and was able to to use his intuition of what God would do next because of what he knew. And what we see on the screen right now is intuition. This motivates me. This gets me to a plague. I want to go do something epic after seeing this image. This image is so powerful to me. If you take a, take a look at all of, of what, what we might extrapolate from this. Now, obviously, this isn't, you know, like a, a, it may not have looked like this in real life. But I can connect to what this artist is, is rendering here. Because look at how Daniel is standing. Do you notice where his eyes are? Do you notice where his eyes aren't? I don't know if you can tell um, from where you're sitting, but at Daniel's feet, kind of in the foreground, then also a little bit behind him, there are human bones. So obviously these lions are capable of eating. Standing in the midst of death and knowing that the bringers of death are right behind him, he's not paying any attention to them. I would argue that if you know danger is near, you're not going to turn your back to it. And so for Daniel, there's no danger here. If we want a a visible reflection of the product of participating with God, that's it right there. Daniel's participation with God began with an encounter. And that encounter led to more encounters. Each of these encounters demonstrated how the knowledge of God's character breeds faith in his followers. And we are invited into the same reality that we see David standing in this lion's den. I'd love to stare at this picture a little bit longer, but we got three more heroes to talk about. Three friends of Daniel's that encountered God with Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, but then encountered God more, and we see, again, another example of why we can stand like Daniel did with the lions behind us. These three friends encountered God with Daniel. Friends that some of us might know as Rack, Shack, and Benny. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three were faced with a dilemma. Going back to the uh, beginning of Daniel in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, creates a huge gold statue and he orders everyone to bow down to the ground and worship that image um, every time they hear music. Which... If I were Nebuchadnezzar, I might mess with people by like playing, you know, like when I play music, but I've learned um, that people are not playthings. Um, so uh, I would make a really bad king. 
I know I've said that before, but if I had a law that like you had to bow down every time I played music, I would get a kick out of that. Um, so this is the law. Every time they hear music, you've got to bow down to this big, giant gold statue and, and worship it. And I can't think of, of, of maybe a more uh, uh, apt reflection of what religion actually does. I mean, you don't have to be connected to anything other than the fact that you just don't want to get dead. So you hear music and you just bow down. You don't actually have to care at all. You just hear music and you bow down. That is such a perfect picture of religion. Now, Rackshack and Benny know that there's only one object worthy of worship. They know that that object worthy of worship is the living God that they've encountered and have continued to encounter. The living God that promises salvation. They refused to bow. And then this in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. There's a lot going on in that. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and they threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they, as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and even advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Why are these five men, Samuel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, why are they able to face circumstances that would lead others to submit to oppression, defeat, and compromise? They're able to do this because they all encountered the living God, and they knew that he is who he says that he is, and he can be counted on to act in in accordance with his character, and that character emerges to us through Scripture. This encounter led to a relationship. 
something that, that John Wimber, founder of the Vineyard Movement, pointed out when he said that the way in is the way on. What John Wimber meant when he said that the way in is the way on is that an entry point of faith isn't an event. The way in is an event. An encounter, an important part of our spiritual journey. But this entry point, this encounter, this experience, this way in leads to an intimacy that's cultivated in worship and prayer that beckons us to participation in and with the kingdom of God. The way in is the way on. This is something that's available to us just in the same way that it was to every hero that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. That entry point, that encounter, begins a relationship, a journey, that reveals the character of God. And as we participate in that relationship, the product is faith. So as we turn now back to worship and prayer, we do so with this invitation, with an invitation to encounter the living God and to experience the peace of his presence. And so as we get ready to worship, I'm also going to invite the prayer team to come forward. I'm going to ask that you would just join me in this prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and release the gifts of your Spirit here. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make your presence known to each of us now. I pray, Father, that we could feel you in the natural. I pray that we would know that you are with us. And I pray, Father, that, that we would see that as an experience, but also as a beckoning to even more. And so, Father, for all of those that, that, that would be here and might be aware of a false image of the living God, all of those that would see an angry God, a wrathful God, a God that can't be bothered, a frustrated God, a God that looks over our life and says, what is wrong with you? I pray, Father, that you would come now and remove that in the name of Jesus, and I pray that you would replace it with a clear image of who you are and your deep love for us. And so, Father, I pray that we could hear you beckon us to experience the true living God. Father, I pray that, that from this encounter, we would know more encounters. And I pray, Father, that as you beckon us, I pray that we would be turned to others. And so, Father, as we worship you, I pray that you would also work on us. I pray that we would know that we can encounter you right now. And I pray that we'd have the courage to do so. Vineyard, as we continue to worship, our prayer team is going to stay up here. If you would like prayer for anything at all, we are here to pray. If you would just like to feel 
to experience the living God. I'd invite you to come and to do that. If you have something that's on your heart, if you have something that, that if, if you are, are sick, if you have pain, if you're feeling anything at all, we, are, we have time now together as a family to invite the living God to come against all of those things. And so as we close in worship, we're here to pray for each other as well.